Good morning. This morning we are going to consider probably the greatest question in the world. How can we be right with God? Every sincere person asks that question. Somewhere in the world there's a man cutting himself with a knife, hoping to gain the approval of God. Or somewhere in the world there's, there's people lying on a bed of nails, hoping to prove by their mastery of pain their worthiness of eternal life. Somewhere in the world, people in the Middle East are, are, by the millions are praying toward Mecca five times a day, following the dictates of their religion. In Haiti, followers of voodoo are killing chickens and placing the carcass before some makeshift altar, hoping that God will smile upon them. Why? Well, the answer is always the same. Men and women who do these things desperately want to be right with God. They do what they do because they hope to appease God or to please God or to pacify Him or somehow manipulate Him into liking them. Because we all stand before God someday and we all want Him to declare us righteous in His sight. And the one, that one fact explains most of the religious activity that we see in the world around us. From killing chickens to bowing down facing Mecca, from resting on a bed of nails to praying the rosary, from going to Sunday school to saying the Lord's Prayer. What we do, we do because we want to be right with God, and we just don't know how. How can we be right with God? And to that all-important question, there is no more satisfying answer than the text we'll get to this morning at the end of Romans 3. It is the essence of the gospel and the heart of our message, and we're going to get there eventually. We have to put that verse, those verses into some context first. We began our journey through Romans by doing something I've never, ever recommended anybody do before. Read the back of the book first. And that's what we've done, because knowing where this letter is headed helps us understand how Paul gets there. And I've argued that this book is more than just a theological treatise. This is a pastoral epistle. It's a letter written that's more than just theology. I mean, we assume Romans 1, 2, and 3, oh, it's deep theology. The theology actually comes at the end of chapter 3, where we're going to get to this morning. That's the paragraph on how to get right with God. Paul's gospel is more than a message of individual salvation. His gospel is the story of Jesus, the Messiah. It's the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the story of Jesus as that Messiah. It is the story of a God who plans to bless and include the entire world if they'll be loyal and obedient to Him through faith. And so Paul opens his book by talking about moral transformation how do you change? And he's building this case that transformation doesn't come through obedience to the law, but by living our theology. And so after his introduction, he's been talking then and he describes for the Jews their typical Jewish, their typical Gentile sinner. And the typical Gentile sinner in the Jewish world is very bad. He's right, they are bad. But Paul uses Romans 1 to set up the figure of the judge in Romans 2. 
The judge in Romans 2, they love all this stuff about how bad the Gentiles are. But everything changes rather abruptly in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul writes, You, therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. What? The weak, the Jewish believers are sitting there thinking, me? I'm not as bad as these horrible Gentiles. You can't be serious. We're Jews. The weak are the judge figure in Romans 2. Paul wants them to know, you know, you too will be judged by God. In Romans 1, he's talking about Gentiles. He never talks to Gentiles. And that talking about Gentiles is something that judge figure, the Jews, the Jewish believers, they really like that part. But by Romans 2, he's talking directly to them, to this group that knows the Torah, the law, who believes the Torah, who practices it, and who expects the Gentiles in the church to practice it as well. They are God's elect. They're the remnant. They're the messianic people of God. You need to listen to us. And because the strong believers, these Gentile believers, they're not doing the law, the weak believers, the Jews, think, oh, they're just inferior. They're just not committed enough. And so what Paul is talking about is that he really wants the church to not use the law as a club. That's the problem. Don't beat your fellow Christian with the Old Testament law. Don't do it. Because there will be no unity in the church if one side is bashing another side. And his point in Romans 2 is that Jewish Christians are just as guilty as Gentile Christians. Their sins, they might be different, but they're just as guilty. Imagine being a Jewish believer in a house church in Rome. You've been cheering through the end of Romans 1. You're like, yeah, go get those Gentiles. And then they read chapter 2, verse 1, and Phoebe, who's reading the letter to them, looks at them. And you discover, ah, I'm a hypocrite? I'm a sinner too? Come on. So now in Romans 3 and 4, the Jewish believers, they ask some questions, three questions. In Romans 3, 1, what advantage is there in being a Jew? What value is circumcision? What's the point of all this? In verse 27, he asks, where then is boasting? And in chapter 4, verse 1, he asks, what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? What did he discover in this matter? We're going to explore the first of those questions this morning. In chapter 3, from verse 1 through verse 26, we're going to save questions 2 and 3 for next Sunday morning. So let's explore this first question. The first question is this. Is there an advantage to being Jewish? Come on, Paul. You've been interacting with rabbis all across the Roman Empire. He's dealt with these questions over and over again. He's debated them. And the questions he raises here and he answers here in Romans are pretty much the same questions he's probably gotten all over the place wherever he's traveled. And the Jews, they didn't object to the notion that Gentiles were sinners. They kind of liked that part. And they didn't object to the theoretical notion that they too were sinners. But they couldn't and wouldn't accept that they were sinners before God 
and on equal basis with the Gentiles. We're Jews, come on. That can't be right. So Paul asks the question, what is the advantage of being Jewish? And this is what he's going to say. Is there an advantage? Well, yes, there's an advantage. But no, the advantage is probably not what you think it is. It's a little different than you think. And so he answers the question of advantage with some yeses and some noes. And they begin to have some natural objections to his reasoning. I mean, how can we not have a real advantage because we're Jewish? Explain that to me, Paul. And so they object, as we probably would have too if we'd sat there and were Jewish. So Paul explains his position by exploring these objections. So is there an advantage to being Jewish? Objection one is, yes, he says, there is an advantage. But they say, but if I'm a sinner, why should I even be religious? What's the point of all of this? Paul, don't tell me my Jewishness has no standing or has no advantage in the church. And so they're objecting to Paul's teaching that, that sin is universal because in their minds it destroys their special standing with God. Look what he says, Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? If this were all these sinners, what's the advantage? Or what value is there in circumcision? After you've gone through it, you want it to be an advantage. That was a joke. Much in every way, <laughs> for the man, much in every way, he says in verse 2. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, the Jews felt with, with some justification that because they were God's chosen people, they had this special relationship with God. Part of that's certainly true. They are the chosen people. They are these people that God chose to, to, to use to, to touch the world. Romans 9 through 11, which we've already looked at later in the book, expands on that. But the fact, true as it is, doesn't negate the reality that their sinful condition is still true before God. In essence, their objection goes this way. If we're sinners like the Gentiles, why bother being Jewish? Why keep the law? Why follow the Ten Commandments? Why offer the sacrifices? Why not just give it all up? You know, if, if you're right, Paul, that's where all this leads to. See, they were arguing that special favor means special privilege. Now, Paul does not deny that they have a special relationship with God. They've been given the Word, the Torah. But his implication is striking. He says special favor means special responsibility. God expects more from you, not less. They have been given so much. To whom much is given, much is required. And Paul is saying it's still better to serve God and keep the law, but that doesn't give you any special favors from God. Your privileges don't get you off the hook. They actually enlarge the hook. Imagine being on a remote island, permanently shrouded in darkness. There's only one way off the island of darkness, and that's some narrow footbridge over a deep cavern. You, you just, you just can't, you got to take the bridge. And you go across the bridge one at a time. And then suppose that everybody on the island is given a tiny pen light, 
And this pen light lights up and you can see exactly a foot around you. That's all you can see. Now, suppose one group of people on the island were given a searchlight. That's a lot of light you can see for a long way with this searchlight. And the purpose of giving them the searchlight was what? You can find the bridge and get off the island. And although the searchlight was given to this group to help them find the bridge and to help others find the bridge, they decide to use it to search for needles in a haystack. What would the judgment be on the people with the searchlight? Because they've wasted what they were given. And that's what the Jews are doing. The law is like a searchlight designed to help people find God. But instead, they're using the light to argue over trivialities. They argue, mm, but how far can you walk on a Sabbath? They talk about whether or not to, to, it was a sin to spit on the Sabbath. And, and if you spit on the Sabbath, can you spit in the mud or a rock? These are actual discussions because one of them is work and one of them is not. You can't make mud. That's how they used the law. So the Jews were doubly guilty. They didn't obey the law themselves, and they didn't use it to help people. And so their objection falls to the ground because Jews weren't meeting the responsibilities that came with their special favor from God. Number two, is there an advantage to being Jewish? Yes, Paul says. And they say, but if I'm a sinner, why not give up on God since he's given up on me? This is really faulty thinking, but this is their argument. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Well, not at all, Paul says. Let God be true and every human being a liar. See, this objection, it follows from the first one. Paul, suppose for a moment we grant your argument that we Jews are sinners. I mean, if that's true, then we might as well forget about the promises of God to Israel because we've, we've blown it. He made a deal with us, and according to you, we didn't keep our end of the bargain. Therefore, God won't keep his part either. Now, there's a grain of truth in that. It's true that Jews didn't keep their part of the bargain. They sinned again and again and again. They keep turning to heathen idols. So if God's promises are conditional, they blew it and God isn't going to answer. But if his pr basic promise to Israel as a nation is not conditional, as it was with Abraham, I will bless you no matter what you do, then the faithfulness of, of God will carry them through. Because their objection, and Paul's answer is this, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. The objection is God gives up on people when they sin. Is that true? I would say that's how we feel a lot of the time. We sin, God gives up on us. When we look at the evil we have done, we sincerely feel that we are too wicked to be forgiven. That's the argument here. 
And when they considered the sordid record of their past, they conclude that their sin disqualified them from the grace of God. And Paul says this, let God be true and every man a liar. God never gives up on anyone. Never under any circumstances. There's nothing you will do that will cause God to give up on you. If there is, then your sin is greater than God's grace. Now, that doesn't make your sin any less sinful, nor does it excuse your disobedience. But it does mean that no matter what you have done, God can forgive. In order to prove his point, Paul points to the, probably the greatest example of forgiveness in the Old Testament. He points back to Psalm 51, a psalm confo- composed of the confession of David after his terrible sin with Bathsheba. Chapter 3, verse 4 in Romans says, As it is written, I'm quoting David now, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. David is saying that what happened to him is a demonstration of the justice of God. David's sin, God judged him, and he proved that God is righteous in everything. Because after he was judged, God forgave him. And he proved that God's grace is greater than man's sin. Because the point is clear, God is always willing to forgive. And if the point is clear, the application is clear, all of the sins of the Jewish race could not cause God to break his promises with them. And if everyone turns out in the world to be a liar, God will be true to his word. And David's a great illustration of this point because he's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a murderer. And God forgave it all. And if God can forgive David, he can forgive you. Is there an advantage to being Jewish? Number three, yes. But their objection is, but if I'm a sinner, why bother being good? God's just going to forgive it all anyway. Now, if you read these verses quickly, it might not be apparent precisely what this new objection is about. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness, more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? You see, the argument goes something like this. Well, now, Paul, you've played right into our hands. We got you now. You just got through saying that David's sin gave God a chance to demonstrate both his justice and his grace. If David hadn't sinned, we wouldn't have known of God's grace and his justice as much as we do from since he sinned. So in a sense, David's helping God out. So whenever I sin, I'm helping God out. Amen. No. But if my sin helps God out, how can he judge me for being a sinner? It's a fairly slick argument, is it not? It's also a sick argument. Because the person who talks like this is really accusing God of using sin for his own advantage. That's the line of thinking that leads to an absurd conclusion in verse 7. Now, here's a clarification for those of you glued to your your sermon notes. The fog of of Friday morning cleared up on Saturday. 
And so the verse that I'm going to quote now, it's under the next point. Just ignore that. We're just going to read the verse. You're not lost. We're still on point three, right? Okay, whatever. We're moving on. Verse seven as a supportive point number three. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Or, if our sin gives God a chance to demonstrate his faithfulness in his judgment and his grace, why not sin more so God can just forgive more and show more justice and show more grace? And that objection is stated three different times in this text, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what do we say? Verse 7, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Verse 8, let us do evil that good may result. But here's the fatal flaw. The argument is when I, when I sin, I'm doing God a favor. If being bad makes God look good, then I should just be really bad so God will look really good. And Paul's argument is succinct. That's stupid. The Greek says it more nicely, may it never be. But the force of it is like, God forbid, or that's stupid. It's the strongest possible rejection of that kind of thinking. And it's wrong for two reasons. Number one, if sin glorifies God somehow, then how can God judge the world? You're going to end up with moral chaos. If there's no difference between right and wrong and good and evil, black and white and night and day, the result is moral chaos and anarchy. And number two, if sin glorifies God, how can he judge people who do such things? He can't. And Paul dismisses them by saying their condemnation is just. You know, there's a big difference between being a sincere seeker and someone who's just making excuses for their behavior. Because if you just make excuses, you will stand before God someday, and guess what? He will condemn you. Their condemnation is just. And they will discover that their excuses will not be accepted. Now, before we go on, I think we need to think carefully about this objection because I think we do this. The church uses it more often than we think. Statements like, well, I think it was a good thing I got divorced because now I'm able to minister to people I've never been able to minister to before. Or, I'm glad I lost my temper with those two guys because that's how I'm dealing with my anger. Or, sure, I got drunk with the guys, but, you know, now they know I'm just one of them. It's okay. This is all so tricky. We need to keep two things in mind. Number one, sin is always sinful. There's no such thing as good sin. Sin's the reason Jesus came to the earth. Sin is the reason that, that Christ went to the cross. There's nothing good about it. It is thoroughly and completely evil. And second, God is able to bring about good things from our dumb mistakes. That's what the grace of God is all about. But understand this, the fact that God can bring good out of bad choices does not turn stupidity into wisdom. And it doesn't justify sin. Sin is always sinful. 
And it's true that as a result of your personal pain, he might be able to touch other people that you could never touch before. But do not excuse your sin ever. Maybe it is good that that fallen TV evangelist won't be on TV anymore begging for money. But that doesn't justify his immorality or lessen the hurt to the body of Christ. Cussing somebody out is hardly justified by the lame excuse, well, at least someday I'll be able to share the gospel with them. Getting drunk with the guys can hardly be excused because you're hoping to share the gospel someday with them. It's like saying, we should pray for sickness so doctors get the chance to heal people. We need to pray for more fires so firemen can do their thing and show us how wonderful they are. We need to pray for more disasters so ambulance drivers, they got something to do, keep them employed. Pray for more rapes so judges can put more rapists in prison. It's ludicrous. It's an evil suggestion which springs from an evil mind. But I do think it hits closer to home than we think. Is there an advantage to being Jewish? Answer number four is, well, no. Because everybody's a slave to sin. He brings the full weight now of the Old Testament to let us know how completely sinful we are, even the Jewish believers in the church. There haven't been too many quotes from the Old Testament through this section, but boy, he unloads now. And he unleashes a dump truck on them. Chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ooh. And then the grand conclusion, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, that's the pastoral point he's trying to make. Why are you clubbing these strong believers, the, the, the Gentiles, over the head with your hypocritical righteousness? Torah observance is not the path to righteousness. It never was, and it never will be. And don't forget, this message isn't to a general Jewish audience. This message is to who? The Jews in the church. Paul is talking to believers who are in the stream of God's election. Yes, Gentiles are sinners, but so are the Jews who don't do God's will. The issue isn't Jew-Gentile. This is an inside-the-church problem. It's Christian versus Christian. And they're both recipients of redemption. But redemption didn't come from Torah observance. So stop judging each other. You don't gain status in the church by following the Torah or by not following the Torah. Where does our righteousness come from? Now we're ready for Romans 3. 
verses 21. One final time, is there an advantage to being Jewish? Paul says no, because obedience doesn't save. Only faith saves. Introduce it with verse 9 of chapter 3. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Paul's Jewish. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And now that becomes the context in which we come across the most amazing passage in Romans and perhaps in the Bible. Let's read it slowly and carefully. Remember the goal is the pastoral message that Paul has above everything else. He's trying to bring true unity into the church between the weak and the strong, between the the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And this is what he says, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness we need is from God. It's apart from the law. Verse 22, the the last part of it. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Why are you clubbing each other? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunishment, unpunished. You know, this is the righteousness we need. It's received only by faith. It's for sinners only. It's based on the grace of God. It's provided in the death of Christ. Three big, huge theological words here. Number one, justify, which is, yes, it means to declare not guilty, but it also includes the idea that, you, that righteousness has been put on your account. Not only are you not guilty, but, man, you're free. You're, you're, you've got righteousness on your permanent record. God says you're righteous. You're just not a, not, not a sinner, but you're righteous. Second word, redeemed, to be set free by the payment of a price. We were slaves in that slave market of sin. And Christ redeemed us. He paid the price to set us free. And what was the price? The blood of Christ. And when a sinner trusts Christ, God releases him from those chains forever. Third word is propitiate. In NIV, it says sacrifice of atonement. It comes from the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where, the, where the, the, the priest would come into the altar once a year and he, he'd pour the blood of the, the ram or the goat onto the altar to cover up sin. It's, it's the idea of turning away the wrath of God by offering a gift. Why is that important? Because the justice of God demands the ultimate punishment for sin. And to call the death of Christ a propitiation means that the wounded heart of God is now satisfied. And when a sinner trusts Christ, God accepts him based on what Jesus has done with that bloody sacrifice on the cross. His anger has been smoothed. It's been appeased. 
In verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, the plan that God came up with, this method of salvation, it demonstrates his justice. And the salvation of God began in a plan long before Jesus ever came. And the paradox of salvation is this. God is a God of love. And so he wants to forgive sinners. But he's also a God of holiness. He can't just overlook it and be just. So how could God love sinners and just not overlook their sin? Nobody could dream of the answer. And the answer is that he sent his son and he poured out his justice on that son. And in that way, the just punishment for sin was fully met in the death of Christ for sinners who now just have to believe in Christ and be freely forgiven. That's a radical solution, not of our plan. Only God could dream up something like that. And so Paul could say that God is both just in that he punished sin and he is the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. But notice the power of the death of Christ. It reaches clear back to Adam and Eve. All of those sins are taken care of and it reaches forward to the future. All of them taken care of. The death of this one man By his death, all the sins of the human race are fully paid for, past, present, and future. And as a result, our sin is gone forever. God's just. He didn't just overlook. He just doesn't wink at sin. He's the justifier of sinners. He declares us righteous in the person of Christ. As we wrap up, I want you to keep two facts in mind. These are bonus facts. Number one, once we have sinned, we display an amazing ability to justify our sin. Excuse making started with Adam in the garden. It was her fault. (laughs) Paul says it's time to stop making excuses. The foundation you see for peace in the church is the commitment to the universality of our sin. All of us are sinners. Church, he's saying, can we stop judging one another and just get along? Can we let the Bible tell us how to do life together? God says, look at the man in the mirror. You know how hopeless you once were. And we just want to argue with that man in the mirror because we don't like the truth of who we are. But silence is the beginning of salvation. Silence is the beginning of proper relationships with one another. God's design in showing us our sin is to shut us up long enough that we might actually listen to what he has to say. Fact number two, once a man turns from his sin... God displays an amazing ability to forgive that sin. And that's exactly where the gospel message gets so relevant. When you finally stop talking and listen, the truth of the gospel can come crashing through to you. As long as you just keep defending yourself, you cannot be forgiven. So stop talking 
and listen. See what God has done for you. David found out what God could do for him when he finally stopped and admitted his sin. And he looked at himself in the mirror and he stopped making excuses. Those who make excuses fool no one but themselves. Those who dare to tell the painful truth about themselves discover that after the pain, there is pardon. After the humiliation, there's healing. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You can discover the truth, but first you have to learn to tell the truth. And if you're willing to do that, you can be forgiven. And if we are willing to do that, we can have peace in the church, which is exactly where Paul is taking all of this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak the truth to the weak, to the strong, and it is that truth that as we live it will allow us a proper perspective about how to live with one another in peace and in joy. And if we've spent our lives looking at, at that person in the mirror, making excuses, Father, this morning, let us stop with the excuses. Let us see ourselves as you do, that we might hear the words of hope that there is in Christ salvation, deliverance, forgiveness, justification, redemption, propitiation that we don't have to do all this other stuff to gain your favor. We just need to believe that what Jesus did is enough. We worship you, and we thank you for your wonderful and amazing plan. In Jesus' name, amen.